Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and, and together we are your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. This week's topic is light. light. Because we had a request. Thanks, Kyle. Yay! <laughs> but first... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we got a few little stories to, to update you on. So uh, why don't we start with... Uh, let's the start with Olympics. The Olympics had ju- have just wrapped up in Tokyo, Japan. It was a pretty... It was actually the, the most successful non-boycotted Olympic Games for Canada. Yay! Yay! <laughs> it was good. 24 medals. 18 of them won by women. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. Including the soccer game. Oh, yes. I uh, <laughs> I didn't quite peel myself out of bed out of bed at like 6 a.m. to watch the soccer <laughs> Not game. Not dedicated. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> I also knew it was going to be at least 90 minutes long. So I sort of knew that I had a window of tuning in. Mm. Um, but I'm not a huge soccer watcher. Not like a crazy big soccer fan or anything like that. I, I can appreciate the sport just like I can appreciate like pretty much any sport. But uh, that was 100% like got to be... For my Olympic Canadian sporting moments, 100% in the top five, I would say. Um, it was electrifying. It was amazing to watch. It was amazing to watch Sinclair finally get this kind of, reach this pinnacle of the sport. Uh, I think it really speaks to, like, how powerful the Canadian women's team is and just, like, women's soccer in Canada in general. Uh, and it was just, it was just magical. And it was, like, but I was, that those penalty kicks, that <laughs> is probably some of the most tense sports watching I've ever experienced. I was, like, living and dying on every kick. <laughs> Um, and definitely woke up my neighbors screaming, uh, and I did not care. <laughs> it's like, that's your fault, neighbors, for sleeping through this amazing moment. And if you're like me or Davis's neighbors and you missed it, uh, after yes. this show, we can all go watch some clips. Yes, it's it's pretty cool. But yeah, overall, I mean, I, I mean, that's like even to say like that was a really amazing moment because it's like you know it, we're towards the end of Sinclair's career. She's the great one of the greatest soccer players, yeah. period, of all time. The even great, I know that the greatest international scorer of all time. And, you know, she, she's a Wayne Gretzky of her sport, basically. But they, it kind of overshadows some of these other incredible accomplishments by some Canadian athletes. Uh, like Damian Warner won the decathlon. Ooh. The winner of the decathlon gets the title of, like, greatest athlete. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, you do 10 you, things. You do 10 <laughs> different things that are, like, not super related to each other. Yeah. But he also broke an Olympic record. He's um, And he's only, like, the fourth athlete ever to post a score over 9,000. So someone's got to go out there and make uh, some... It's super, over 9,000! <laughs> super Saiyan memes <laughs> with Damien Warner, especially because Damien Warner's bald. So, which oh. also, like, I make, like, a... I always think make, like, One Punch Man jokes because mm-hmm. he's trained so hard that now yeah. he's bald. But, like, yeah, somebody's got to make, like, a Super Saiyan meme with his hair going all yellow, and it, it's over 9,000. As soon as Davis said over 9,000, I like looked at him with a like, <gasps> Yeah, <laughs> so she knows exactly where I'm going with well, this. I have to make a joke. I have yeah. to make a joke. But there's so many, there were so many amazing storylines. Like that's just two out of do- like literally two dozen amazing storylines. Like Maggie McNeil winning Canada's first gold of the games. Mm-hmm. Obviously Penny Alexiak becoming the most decorated Canadian Olympian ever. Uh, Summer Olympian, I think, or, or is it just flat out ever? I, I, I don't know. Remember. But anyway, <laughs> none of this is about science, but it was, it was a pretty magical uh, Olympic games for Canada. And yeah, it's just, it's all wrapped up now. But I think like we, I think, you know, 
check out some of these these pretty impressive like moments of humanity I always mm. like to think of them as and for me what I'm going to remember most about this Olympics was the the way the athletes were really taking their careers and their health into their own hands right like we had mm. Simone Biles not uh competing in a number of events because she wasn't feeling safe doing so and in a sport as dangerous as gymnastics if you're not feeling and at her level which is beyond anyone else's level if you're not feeling really really prepared and confident then you should be allowed to step back and and when she did she got a lot of flack for it but she also got a ton of support especially from the gymnastics community and mm-hmm. ex-olympia or like past olympians who said like when i competed i had like a broken foot or i had fractured spine and i was like not competing was not an option so there was so much support saying like yes you as an athlete are taking control for your health long-term, and it's not just about the Olympics. And I know um, Naomi Osaka in tennis uh, did a similar thing, like stepping Mm. down because of uh, mental health. So, yay! And then there were the, uh, was it handball? European handball? Oh, I didn't even hear about this one. This is a new one for me. Okay, so it's it's different, but they so they have to wear like bikini bottoms. Oh yes, yeah, sorry, I did hear yeah. about this one. Yes, yeah, so it's, to... yeah, it's not handball. It's like a slightly different sport, but it's something like handball. Or yeah. Whatever. yeah, but so they're they're uniforms. They don't have beach, oh, yeah. yeah, they're basically like the beach volleyball, right? So it's like a sports bra top and like teeny tiny bikini bottoms, and there were rules that you could only have like ten centimeters wide on the side, and so the Norwegian team, I believe, decided to wear shorts. Yeah. So they basically go like belly button to mid thigh, you know, like a practical sports short. And they're still like skin tight because that's what you wear would wear for the sport to move in. Uh, and they got fined, I think, by the... It was, if it was handball, it was like the European Handball Commission because their uniforms were were not like... They, were, they went against the rules and then Pink, the singer, said that she would cover their fines uh, because it's ridiculous that they were told to wear this. Um, some German gymnasts, or the, the German gymnasts, decided to wear full-length unitards right? Yes. instead of the regular leotard uh, because that shows a lot of skin and it's, like, very revealing in sensitive areas. So they elected to wear unitards, which was I thought was really awesome. Um, who else? There was one other one. Oh, there was a runner who... Uh, was it a marathoner? I don't remember the details. But she was wearing, like, her little briefs. It wasn't a marathoner. It was one of the shorter races. Mm-hmm. But she was wearing, like, the little running briefs and she was told they were too short when, like, she's worn them for a whole bunch of races. Oh, So geez. there's... Just the, the whole, like, <laughs> clothing and women's sports thing and, like, who's making yeah. the decision and why are you making the decision. Uh, and female athletes, like, sticking up for themselves and being like, this is silly. We're going to wear what makes us comfortable because we are athletes, mm-hmm. professional athletes. And I was like, yay! Yeah, like, there's only a handful of sports where it's, like, you know, like, even, like, well, like men's Greco-Roman wrestling. Like, you have to wear a unitard like that that's skin tight because you literally do not want to give your opponent anything to grab onto. Yeah. Right? But this has been, like, yeah. So there's only a handful of sports where it should ever really matter what you're wearing. And in but. gymnastics, the reason they wear, like, such tight stuff is you mm-hmm. have to see the line of the body. Mm-hmm. But you can get around that with around the, like, the kind of, like, the swimsuit bottom, right? By wearing a unitard, which goes, like, basically uh, collar to, to cuffs to ankles. Like, uh, to wrist to ankles. And... It's, it's strange to me that it's not bigger in artistic gymnastics because in rhythmic gymnastics, which I did also did for a bit, unitards are everywhere. So many gymnasts wear them, and that is a sport that is, like, all about the line of the body. But, yeah, Olympics! Yeah, so that that is... I know there were so many great storylines out of this Olympics, so many great human interest stories, so many, you know, and I think I think just, like, to your point, right, it's, it's really neat to see, um, especially when you're a high-profile athlete like someone like Simone Biles... Uh, and you can come out and 
you, you know, you have a little bit more, it's almost, you're in a, you're in a really tough position because you're at the top of your sport. And so there's this huge mountain of expectation on you, but you yeah. also have the largest platform. Yeah. And it's so important for athletes that don't have the same, like if they make these same types of dramatic decisions or about uniforms or about, mm -hmm. you know, mental health and those sorts of things to not compete or are in smaller markets, like they're not competing for the U S and stuff like their careers are over. Yeah. So it's so important for people that have that platform, like they have the courage to say those things. So, you know, yeah, kudos to all the Olympians that competed this year through some extremely trying times uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of difficulties, I'm sure in Tokyo with, yeah. you know, having to be isolated from your family that I'm sure that the challenges that just come with a normal Olympics on a good year. So, and the temperatures. Yes, that that was very very yeah. fascinating for sure. Um, and speaking of yeah, oh, temperatures, yeah, uh, yeah, I know <laughs> I don't know whether to applaud that uh, transition or or to to cringe because unfortunately we've got to talk about less fun things now. Yeah, that's a reasonable response. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not cringe because it was a bad segue. It was a very good segue. Thank it's you. Just, Cringe because now we got to talk about unfortunate stuff. Um, so you've probably heard, uh, and you know, this is sort of the thing we decided to do light, uh, partly because Kyle requested it, and I was having a conversation with him, and uh, and he was right. I bring up lasers a lot, so it was to kind of time that we talked about how light works. <laughs> but um, uh, it was really hard to find something in the news that was sort of like interesting to talk about that wasn't literally like climate change or the Olympics, yeah. which were two things that we've basically already covered. Yeah. And so you've probably heard this IPCC report came out, uh, I think it's just late last week now. And basically it's like all of like the worst predictions you could have made and then them going like, oh, you see all these models that were like the worst that could have possibly happened. Turns out they're all inaccurate because these positive feedback loops are moving way faster than anyone would have expected. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so basically there's been a ton of news, ton of coverage on this subject uh, in the last couple of weeks. And yeah, it's, uh, I don't really know what to say about it because it's something obviously that weighs on me pretty heavily. But yeah, same. We are, uh, we are in some, we are some dire straits, people. Yeah, um, like even if, yeah, if we, what was it, within the next four, or after the next four years, you're saying if we can like reduce, if, if our, if our carbon emissions peak within the next four years and then we start to reduce drastically, we'll avoid the worst of climate change, but we are going to suffer bad effects of it. Yeah. Still. So, so this is a story that I haven't quite cross-checked just yet. Um, but that I, there was a UN report that was leaked that a bit, you know, based off the findings of this other report that sort of was saying this, that like, if we don't force all these emissions targets, to like not the target, sorry, but like the actual emissions to peak in the next four years and then start to come down that, yeah, like we will see like massive global ecosystem collapse and stuff like that. So again, I haven't fully corroborated this report, this leaked report, I haven't looked super closely into it just yet, but, uh, it's all in line with like all of these findings that are coming out. Um, yeah. And I mean, we can see this, right? Like the world's on fire. So many places are on fire and they're having to evacuate. Like we've got it happening in Canada. It's happening in the States. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in Russia slash like Siberia. Yeah. It's yeah. happening all over the place. And that one's really bad because it could get to the, you know, Siberia has a lot of cold, cold permafrost type areas. And if they get hit by the forest fires, they could warm up and that would release more greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so sorry to bring you down the for you know, by the 11 minute mark of this <laughs> podcast, but uh, it, it, we had to talk about it. It's, it's in the news. Um, it's in the news. It's a, <laughs> it's a huge deal. 
Um, I think it's one of these really tricky things because it is sort of so beyond the ability of like us as individuals to do anything about, but, uh, but it affects us all because we all live here. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And like, and I, yeah, I don't know really what more to say about it. Like, I think it's, it's one of those things, keep an eye on this story. Keep, um, it sounds like as of today, uh, there's some insider reports coming up that like Canada is going to be moving into an election cycle starting on this weekend. Basically there's going to be an election on the 20th of September. Oh, dang. Uh, the weekend will, the weekend that I will take to edit this podcast and then publish it will probably prove me right or wrong, which will be quite, <laughs> quite funny for when I have to publish it. But, uh, that's what some of the insider reports coming out today are saying is that, yeah, uh, they're going to call an election. So the reason I'm saying that is obviously because the one thing that we can do as citizens is we can we can use our actual vote, you know, if you're privileged enough to live in a country where you can express yourself that way. Um, again, obviously, we're about to go into a major election cycle and it's time to, you know, I mean, I think I and mean, I think the thing is, is that most politicians these days, I think they understand that uh, you you have. I was going to say, I know exactly mm-hmm. what, how you're why you're acting this way, mm-hmm. but I, was, I think that the, the political gamesmanship recognizes that you now need to fall on one side of this issue or the other. You can't just sort of be like, well, I'll let the Green Party deal with this or I'll let that, mm-hmm. that be part of their yeah, big platform. You need an opinion. And exactly. And like, I don't want to get too political about it just because this is not really what this podcast is about. But yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, we have an opportunity now to really to to make ourselves heard to our politicians. And, and, and I think you're going to see like, I don't, I think it will be a pretty short-sighted campaign platform if it's not going to deal super specifically with climate change. If that's not like a major pillar that you're running on at this point in time, I think you're going to have a hard time uh, swaying the masses, as it were. I but. mean, we say this from Alberta. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so um, so yeah, so we just wanted to give a quick update on uh, on some of the stories that have been happening uh, since we're not covering super like a super um, in the news topic this week. But uh, of but course, yes, of course, there is always some connection to something that's going on. And one thing that's in the news right now <laughs> is the Perseid meteor shower. Yay! <laughs> so this has been uh, I think it started in like late July, but it's really peaking around uh, like August. Kind of 11th, 12th, 13th, it's peaking. So, did you see it, I guess? <laughs> yeah, by, yeah, I don't, <laughs> you're revealing how long it's going to take me to edit some of these podcasts. <laughs> but yeah, but by the time that this podcast comes out, like, the proceeds will have passed, like, the peak, sort of, the, they, they kind of go on for about a month, but, yeah. like, the peak light show, as it's mm-hmm. called, like, typically, it, it's going to occur in the next couple of days, August 12th to 13th. Uh, so it'll pass by the time of publishing, but we thought we'd Not bring it up. Not by a anyway. lot. Well, you'll be close. Oh, I'm sure I'll be super close. <laughs> that doesn't put the pressure pressure on me at all. <laughs> Just here to help. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Put the put the spurs to me. This this is all a magnificent ploy by Sarah because I'm taking too long to edit the episodes. <laughs> it's ah. just like I'm gonna put them on the clock. <laughs> well, I felt that way with the Olympics though, and we yeah. we recorded the Olympics podcast like what two days into the Olympics, yeah. but I was already a little bit like, oh god, like if I wait a week, like then it's like day ten of the Olympics when the episode comes out, and then like so many of the things we'll will have said will have been proven right or wrong already. It'll be a whole thing. It's fun doing a topical podcast. It is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, the Perseids. Uh, so they are named after the constellation Perseus, you know, Greek hero. Mm-hmm, just like many of the other constellations, i.e. all of them. Yeah. Do you remember why that is? I like, 
No. It was in the back of my brain, and like why the reason was they were named. It's, I know it's sort of like an antiquity thing. Like it's just like why all of the um, constellations are named after like the Greek heroes, like myth and stuff like that. But I just like cannot remember like the reason why the eighty-eight official constellations still use those names. I think it's an antiquity thing, but like I just could not remember. I don't know. I wasn't a space kid, so mm-hmm, I have, mm-hmm. if I didn't study it for this podcast, I probably don't know it. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Hey, hey, it happens. <laughs> But yeah, so um, a lot of people love to uh, love to try to catch this particular light show. They uh, and a lot of people will will head pretty far out of like town center. So if you live somewhere like we do in Calgary, like you've you've got to leave the city. You got to leave the big city if you want to see like the actual light. If you really want to get the full experience, yeah. Because when you're in the city, you have a lot of light pollution. We don't always think of pollution as being with light as well, but it absolutely is a factor. I mean, if you look at like any city, any like this. Uh, if you look at any city photography at night, you can see this, right? And especially, like, the ones from satellites high above. I was just thinking that. I was just thinking you watch the time lapse of the satellite going around the Earth, and then it's going light and dark, and it's, re- like, you know, the eastern seaboard lights up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. light pollution. That's what you're looking at. Yay. Uh, and I didn't realize quite how bad it was, because uh, I'm usually, mm. I'm always in the city at nighttime. There was uh, mm-hmm. this one time where a friend and I went out to try to catch the aurora because there were like somewhat favorable conditions and we had been talking about it. So it was like, let's just go. We didn't end up seeing any aurora. We drove north out of the city, of Mm -hmm. course, Mm because you don't want to drive south out of the city because I knew the light would block it. But we drove north out of it and then we didn't end up seeing the aurora because it was a cloudy night, which... Of course, (laughs) yes. uh, Hot tip, (laughs) you can't see uh, space stuff when it's cloudy. Uh... The clouds, (laughs) yeah, yeah. This just in, the clouds are lower than space. Ah. <laughs> so at one point we were, we had gotten out of the car and we're like staring at the sky, hoping the clouds were going to move. And I looked, <laughs> I looked back towards the city and because the clouds were low enough, there was just this like orange band of cloud. Mm. And it was like very, very distinct. I even took pictures of it because it was so clear. And I was like, oh, no wonder people from the country hate people from the city. We ruined the sky. <laughs> uh, I remember we went camping earlier. Uh, went camping earlier this year, and like we were, it was a place that was supposed to have really dark skies, but it was a provincial campground. It was like really well maintained. It was like a pretty like family spot, so they had streetlights in oh, the campsite, what? and we were literally like basically under a street light that's brutal it was awful because we'd come oh all this God. way and we were, i was so excited i was like finally i it's like this is like such a sad thing to say <laughs> but like i really want to see the milky way yeah like it's one it's definitely one of my like kind of like bucket list items oh, if you want yeah. to use that language for it, whatever yeah. but like every time i go out and it's somewhere where like it's dark enough skies it's either like heavily treed so you can't actually really <laughs> see the clear night sky or for some reason, there's a street lamp like 10 feet away. That's brutal. Um, it's a campground. Yeah. Oh, I'm but, mad for you. Yeah, but it, it got kind of, it got coined, the light was coined the Star Stealer or something oh. like that because it, it was so bright. It was right next to us. And yeah, so it's everywhere, man. That like can't escape it, that light pollution. A neat one you can do if you, if you live in Calgary, and I mean, you can do this in, in any major city, you can kind of go out of the city center and you've got to go like an hour or so away and you can sort of see this dome of light that's mm-hmm. produced. But in Calgary, there is an observatory on the west end, of, like the southwest end of the city, like deep south, far into the west, just outside of the city called the Rothney Observatory. And it is like just like just 
barely outside of the dome of light pollution and it's like a bit it's got a big it's got like an observatory style telescope they also have a lot of tons of telescopes out there and they set them up and you can take tours out there and it's really it's a neat little spot for sure but you can look back east over like the small hill that the Rothneys kind of nestled partway down on the on the western slope and you can see right over the hill just like they just it, you know it looks like kind of the emerald city from the wizard of oz in the distance and it's just like all white in the sky and this has been even in Calgary now they like a lot of the newer street lights they'll build are like specifically designed where they don't push any white light upwards it's oh. all going like down and they're a little bit muted and stuff like that Good. but one of the neatest places i've ever been to for this is uh in Palm Springs which is in the desert in California and they actually have like all this public ordinance against like light pollution basically oh. so they have like they have rules first of all of like how tall like basically homes can't really be built much about above like a bungalow and then they have all these rules. So there's basically no streetlights. Like there's probably like a fifth as many streetlights, a tenth as many streetlights as you would see here in Calgary. And then like, ra- and then what they do is that like, rather than just having like painted lines on the roads, they're like, you're, you ever see those on like, when you're a kid playing soccer, those like small pylons that they would use to mark stuff out. Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's like, they basically look like that. Hmm. Um, but they're like on the road. They're like in the road. Obviously this is not something that would work in a place like Canada because we get so much snow <laughs> and you can barely see the lines on the road anyway. So um, it's not, and you know, and it's like, we got we a lot darker evenings here and stuff like that. But um, it's quite interesting that there are a lot of places on earth that like really focus on mitigating this light pollution. Which is great. Because if you do want to see something like the Aurora or the Milky Way, mm-hmm. you it's your only chance. Got to get rid of the light. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And like, you know, it's sort of funny. It's like I don't even really, I think it's still it's still pretty hard to get like good stargazing down in Palm Springs because you're still in like a, you're in like a city center. There's still enough light that you're going to, you're going to see the major constellations, but you're not going to be able to pick up just like the, like the star field that really yeah. is just like out there. It's quite yeah. fascinating. I saw the most stars I had this year. I went up to a, a campground, uh, in the north, and we picked it because it had dark skies, mm-hmm. like, just like you. But we got lucky; there were no streetlights, and there was this. Uh, I think it was like a, a man-made uh, lake or like a dam area, mm, like a reservoir. A, a reservoir, yeah. yeah. Um, and so we went out onto the beach at like midnight or something, because it stays light here so long, right? Yeah, yeah. It was like you go early camping June. in July. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but we waited until it was like really dark, and we got out onto the beach, and there was some cloud cover, but other than that, it was the most stars I'd ever seen, and it was just like. The whole section of the sky that didn't have clouds on it was just starred, and it was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I still haven't seen the aurora. Neither have I, and that, I would definitely put that up there as well. Yeah. Um, I think at this point, I would just like I would settle for the Milky Way. I'm <laughs> 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 just like, just something, please. But yeah, I the aurora is really cool. It's definitely on my list as well. I would love something I would love to see. Um, I went to Iceland at the wrong time of year oh. to do that. You know, literally the word, like the opposite time of year that you should go to see the Aurora. I didn't go to see the Aurora. I went cause it was starting a big trip and it like, it was a really great jumping off point and right. Iceland's amazing. If you've never been go there, but like, yeah, you can go during like the time of midnight or I was there during midnight sun. Oh. So there are no stars, <laughs> um, but you can go at a time where it's basically dark all day, all day long. Yeah. And apparently the, the Aurora is just spectacular. Uh, in places like that, but mm-hmm. well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Aurora Davis? Oh man, I I thought you were gonna do this. <laughs> I will the Aurora. Okay, here we go. And I'll put on my little teacher's hat and okay. pretend I know something. No, um, yeah. Well, the Aurora, uh, as as some of you might be familiar with, like the Aurora is caused by like the solar wind. So the sun is a giant ball of plasma. Um, we often think of it as a gas, but it's actually not really a gas. It's this fourth state of matter. 
I was just gonna go fourth state of matter. I said it first. I said it first. I I ruined Sarah's clever, clever uh, cut in on that. It wasn't clever. It was just excited. Yeah. Well, and so the plasma. Basically, what a plasma is, it's 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 a highly energized state of matter where electrons can move freely among the nucleuses of elements that are there. It's what lightsabers would probably be made from. (laughs) There's my clever cut in. Yeah. There you go. Um, Yeah. Exactly. And uh, I mean, there are even like uses for plasma. There's some like not don't do yourself at home with your mom's microwave (laughs) experience where you can like make plasma in a microwave and stuff like that. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't do yeah. Don't do it with your cooking microwave. The the videos I've seen on YouTube, they're in like junkyards and stuff Uh. like that, and they're they're like you know hundred feet away from the thing and stuff like that. It's very micro. We'll get into microwaves later, but uh, (laughs) yeah. So basically, like this ball of plasma that is the sun, and there's a lot going on. It's very energetic, obviously, Uh, and every so often it's going to eject some of this plasma into the space, and we kind of call this like the solar wind. And you've probably heard, like, well, you probably know that Earth has magnetic poles. It's how compasses work. But it's also basically what keeps, like, Earth protected from these, like, so these solar winds are full of these, like, ionizing plasmas. Like, all these ions that would, like, destroy electronics and, like, you know, basically would make it impossible for life to exist on Earth. And Mm -hmm. it would blow away the atmosphere and all these sorts of things. And it's the magnetic sphere, the magnetic kind of sphere of the Earth, the, the electromagnetic field that the earth creates that like protects us from these solar winds yeah and it's the same like if you had you know if you're when you were a kid you had like two magnets and you try putting like north and north together and Mm -hmm. they resist each other so that's because they're creating this little magnetic field around them right Mm -hmm. uh so that's the earth is kind of doing that it's creating this little field to brush off most of the solar wind but some of it comes and interacts with our upper atmosphere Mm mm-hmm and, uh, and one cool thing, if you like wanted to, there's a cool experiment you can do that is, does not involve blowing up microwaves, Good. uh, to kind of visualize like what the magnetic field around the earth looks like is like, you can put iron filings. It works, it works oh, better yeah. if you have like one of those old school, like, um, laminate projectors, like you right. would see in a classroom and you can put a laminate down and, or even just like right on the glass, you can put a bunch of iron filings down and then you put a magnet in the center and then they will form like, and you kind of shake it up a bit and it will form this. It, it basically looks like it, like rings coming out of the like the, they'll form these rings in the iron filings and that is the magnetic field so it's disrupting how the um, filings want to distribute themselves and things like that that's basically what the earth is doing and uh, this magnet magnetosphere I was going to say magnetosphere yeah, I was going to say magneto and then I was like <laughs> um, so it causes these iron ions wow words it causes ions from the solar wind to swirl around towards these poles and then they mix with our gases in the upper atmosphere and they hit them and they excite them, and then we get these uh, injections of color. And this leads very well into light. So yeah, so basically what's happening is you have these like incredibly energetic ions, and then they're hitting other ions, and there's basically, basically they are like shedding electrons or things like that. They're exciting electrons inside these other atoms and molecules. And then everything in the universe basically is lazy. It wants to be at its lowest energy state. And so these electrons will relax. And what they'll what will happen then is they'll spit out a photon of light. Because energy can either be created or destroyed. It's only ever moved around. So if you get hit by an electron, they get really excited. The electron within the atom sort of falls back down to its energy state. has to lose that energy somehow. It comes out as a photon, which is both a particle and a wave. And it's very complicated and but a lot of science light. stuff. It's a, it's a little particle of light. Yeah, a photon is... <laughs> 
it's a little it, packet yeah. of light. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a little, you know, yeah. It, it's easiest generally to think about these things as these, like, diffuse little, like, it is. It's easiest to think about it like a little ball, and it moves through space, and it's a photon, and it hits stuff. Like, it's it's the easiest way to conceptualize it. Yeah. Um, because we humans do not live on the quantum scale, so it's pretty much impossible to think about. <laughs> and this is kind of even a big thing within quantum mechanics is that, like, you can think about something, it, things act as both particles and waves, but you can generally only visualize, like you can visualize, it's kind of like the Heisenberg principle, is you can like, you can see it as a particle in a position in space, or you can know how fast it's moving like as a wave, but you can't do both at the same time because it's just not, we don't have the observation technology for yeah. that. It's not possible. The classic double slit experiment, right? Oh, exactly. And and to yeah. So the double slit experiment is sort of one of the ways, the earliest ways that they sort of proved that there are nuclei and atoms, and they were just sort of firing visible light through two openings at like a plate of gold or something, something right? Like that. Yeah. And they were seeing the anticipated effect was that you would see all these waves come through the slits in this panel the same way, but then some of the photons of light were hitting the nuclei of these gold atoms and bouncing back and creating different patterns than what was expected. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, I think it was Ruther, Rutherford who did that experiment. Um, Maybe. And I, you know, yeah. there's a lot of names that were involved in the, <laughs> in the sort of the discovery of the atom, but, and the, it was all these types of experiments that led to it. A lot of different experiments with light. Um, and speaking of experiments with light. Yes, absolutely. We, you got to go back to the OG a little bit. Yeah, yeah. We can't well, talk about the, the OG. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't talk about the electromagnetic spectrum without talking about good old Sir Isaac Newton. Mm hmm. The creator of calculus and the bane of many first year university students. Uh, <laughs> but clever. Yeah, but yeah, I thought I was clever. <laughs> I, I, I barely made it through Calc 2. Ooh, boy. Um, although, to be fair, a lot of Calc 2, like that's calculus that was invented later anyway. Okay. And that's not even getting into like multivariable calculus that some of my brothers took and stuff like that. That's crazy. Sounds so fun. Oh, it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Newton. Mm -hmm. uh, so back in 1665. He conducted... Oh, yes. The Enlightenment. Yeah, just after the plague. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he conducted several experiments using a glass prism. Uh, and he... So he, like, had his window and he, like, blocked it all off until there was just, like, a little, like, one beam of light coming in. And he mm -hmm. set a prism, like a glass prism, that I think he had special made... Like, by a glassmaker down the road, right? That's yeah, so he actually, like, lived... If I remember the story correctly, he basically lived down the street from one of the the greatest glassmakers in at that time the modern world. Yeah. Um, and that Convenient. was... Yeah, exactly. And that was sort of one of these, like, really interesting sort of aspects of how this was possible. But yeah, yeah. so he, he commissioned all these basically, like, different lenses and things made and yeah. prisms and stuff like that. And when he mm -hmm. had this glass prism and he had that beam of sunlight hit it, it split the the beam of light from one beam of white light into a rainbow, as you often see if, like, I don't know, growing up my mom always had little um <laughs> rainbow. Uh, always had like little crystals hanging in a window. Right. Like, and the multifaceted yes. ones, and then you look on the ground and there's a rainbow on the ground. Do you, ever, do you ever have one of those paperweights? I had one of those paperweights that did that. One of the no. big crystal, big, big head. I was talking about this with somebody the other day, and they were like, they knew, they were like, oh my god, I remember, I remember having something like this too. It was just like a big crystal ball, basically. Oh. And like, but it had like um, all the facets cut into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was the exact same thing. You'd hold it up to the light and it would just spray like rainbow patterns everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So fun. Um, yes. But then people thought that it was just the prism and that Newton was tricking everyone. So then what he did is he took a second prism and he put it in the uh, in the path of the rainbow beam and it uh, turned back into white light mm -hmm. uh, after going through the second one. 
He was like, "It's I'm not lying. This is science." <laughs> and everyone was like, "All right." Mm-hmm. It took a long time for like that experiment to get like any real acceptance, and like yeah. Newton wrote like a whole book on it, right? And it was still <laughs> like of one of these things that like people were just like, "There's no way this is possible." But <laughs> but basically, over time, is like Newton proved that visible light, the like white light from the sun. Um, which we now know is actually like all of these different types of light. Yeah. Um, I'm doing air quotations. Yeah, he did quote <laughs> <laughs> I think I like to think that my in, my intonation <laughs> like gives that away most times, but it's Dave, good to clarify. <laughs> Davis and I are both hand talkers. Oh, so absolutely. So this is a challenge sometimes. Absolutely. I'm surprised <laughs> we haven't like smacked the mic to this point, but I digress. Um, <laughs> what was I talking about? Uh, it took a long time for this. Yeah. Too. Oh, yeah. Accepted. Yeah. Took a long time for, for <laughs> Newton's theories to be accepted. Uh, but he sort of, he really, like, he basically really opened the door to this greater study of light and sort of proved that white light was made up of all these different types of the, all these different colors of light, which we then later came to know as like these different wavelengths of light. And it allowed, it opened the door to all of these other people to start doing similar experiments. So it wouldn't be until like the 1800s, but this a scientist by the name of William Herschel, who's actually, I, I guess I should have written the sir in my little research notes here because he is a sir William uh-huh. Herschel. I don't know if he was a sir. I don't know if he was knighted when he discovered this though. So maybe in terms of a timeline, this makes more sense. Semantics. Yeah, hooray. (laughs) But he conducted a now very famous experiment where basically he did Newton's prism experiment. He split the the white beam of light into several, uh, into all the colors of the rainbow. And he wanted to experiment. He wanted to see if the different colors of the rainbow carried different amounts of like thermal energy. Mm. If they would heat up, you know, a thermometer at different rates. Right. And so what he did was in his experiment design was he had, so... Red kind of comes out first, and then there's all the ones up to blue and violet. And he put his control thermometer below red on his spectrum. And he left it, and he came back. He you know, sure recorded his base measurement, and then he left the room, comes back a couple hours later and records another measurement, come, leaves, comes back. And then he, he, he discovered this. It was, really, he, it was really bizarre. It blew his mind, basically, um, was that for whatever reason, the control, the thermometer that was supposed to be his control was actually registering the highest temperature. (gasps) The one below red. Oh my gosh, what could it be? I don't know. (laughs) It's invisible. (laughs) It's invisible. (laughs) Exactly. And so he basically had to repeat this experiment over and over and over again. He kept getting the same result and it was just bizarre. And what this eventually led to was the discovery of what we now know as infrared light. So it gets this name because it's below red on the electromagnetic spectrum or above red, depending on how you want to draw your spectrum. (laughs) But it's lower energy than the red light, but it carries all of this thermal energy. Um, And so basically infrared light is heat. So like you and me and all of the objects right now, like we're giving off infrared light in the same way that the sun gives off regular light. It also goes up infrared. We'll get to that yeah, in a minute. <laughs> exactly. But that was the discovery of infrared light. <laughs> Woo! We're going to go through this timeline real quick because it's just like, you know, it takes a lot of time for these things to become like really accepted in modern mm-hmm. science, but it really opened people's eyes and like got people really curious about this. So it was only like a year later then that a gentleman by the name of Johann Ritter attempted to do a similar experiment on the other end of the violet section of light. And that's what led to the discovery of ultraviolet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then through the process of science, uh, people were like, well, if there's something on the other side of 
violet and it's ultraviolet. Is there something on the other side of ultraviolet? And they kept pushing out and pushing out until we got the electromagnetic spectrum that we know and love today. Mm -hmm. And like this whole story, like this whole timeline contains like some of the very famous names in science, like James Maxwell, uh, Hertz, and they all sort of played a role in expanding what we now like it's basically expanding the area of the spectrum around visible light visible light we knew about for a long time because we could see it we, we can, can see it we can <laughs> see it we can produce it we can observe it we could observe it doing all these crazy things yeah. and but then it really took some interesting experiments and some accidents basically like mm -hmm. what happens if william herschel puts his control thermometers in the ultraviolet or he puts them to the right hand side of yeah. the spectrum like <laughs> you know do we never discover infrared light how many more years does it take does someone discover it the next day anyway like it's one of those fascinating things about science. You just, so many great discoveries, like the post-it note, were made completely by accident. Yes. The, it's not like somebody discovered the post-it note. It's not like somebody <laughs> dug it up out of the ground or but, something. But the invention of it. Yeah. And it's, it really, I think it's such a, such a strong statement about science and like what you need for science. Because yes, those, there's a, an accident and something happens, but then you like follow this because this is where, this is what your data is showing you. So you follow your data. And then after that, people go, oh, well, that makes me think of this in a different way. And then they think creatively. And people always forget that science is, at its heart, a creative pursuit. Because, like, yes. if, if you're just someone mm -hmm. who, like, works in a lab and you do the same testing every week or, like, like when you worked at Labatt, you said it was very much the same thing every week, right? Because you have to just, like, you're just monitoring levels and you're testing for bacteria and things like that. But at the heart of science and at any, any scientist who's pushing the edge of discovery, they're being super creative because they are trying to come up with like answers to questions no one has ever asked. And so you have to think about it in a way that no one has ever thought about and you have to be so creative and it's just so cool. I was having a conversation with a professor that uh, at my university and she was saying something like this where she had a student who was doing like a psych minor uh, and part of one of their psych experiments was that they were supposed to go and survey a bunch of people about if they were more and do like kind of a left brain, right brain mm -hmm. survey. And the professor said, yeah, sure, I'll do your survey for you and ask, but I guarantee you I will score almost directly down the middle. Like it'll confuse your results because I'll score a 50-50 or whatever. <laughs> and she did, the, she did the test and lo and behold, she was basically like perfectly left-brained, right-brained. Wow. And she said that like in this conversation I was having with her, it was like, it's because just like you said, like you have to have, you have to, you have, to have this ability to think creatively in ways that nobody else has thought of before, but also re regimented and analytically to then prove this thing. Yeah. It's one thing to sit here and dream about, you know, gamma rays turning people into the Hulk and another thing to say like, okay, well, here's my, here's my rigid experimentation to make it happen. Okay, Bruce Banner. Like, yeah. Good choice of example. Yeah, I actually thought, yeah, it worked out pretty well. It was not planned at all. Um, but yeah, so over, the, over time, we we built out this entire electromagnetic spectrum and it took, you know, so it took another 90 years from the discovery of, uh, you know, of the ultraviolet and infrared light to, you know, till almost the 1900s for them to discover X-rays. They were literally given the name X because at the time, like nobody really knew what they were. Um, like the X-Files. Exactly. It's <laughs> precisely it. It's a hundred percent it, right? Aliens. It's, exactly. And then same thing is like gamma rays. The name gamma just stuck because some guy coined it and people were like, well, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, but they like, it was just like, ah, oh, we theorize that there's gotta be stuff beyond it. Right. Um, but basically like, these are all, in essence, different types of light, but we've come to call them the electromagnetic spectrum. 
because they are all these electromagnetic waves of different sizes, basically. And human beings have evolved to see, like, this incredibly yeah. tiny sliver in the middle that we call visible light. And I always find it so hilarious. I mean, it's like, I mean, I get it. Like, you, you know, it's for... It, you know, it's a diagram designed for humans, but it's sort of funny to me. It's like this human centric view of the universe where you've got this massive electromagnetic spectrum with like things from gamma rays all the way down to radio waves, things with like, you know, um, wavelengths shorter than an angstrom all the way up to like wavelengths as big as buildings. But then you've got this little zoomed out portion of like the visible spectrum of light, which is like less than a sliver on the actual spectrum. Yeah, um, if, if the yeah. spectrum was 10 centimeters long, mm. the visible light spectrum would be like, I don't know, half a centimeter. Yeah. We always zoom yeah. it in. It's like, look, a rainbow. Yeah. Cause yeah, it's something like what, like from 400 some nanometers to like, 700 some nanometers so we're talking about like 310 to the negative nine meters yeah. uh why <laughs> out of something that goes from again something that can be like a wavelength the size of a building to a wavelength smaller than the bond between atoms and a molecule so well, that's what that was that you said yeah you said a term and i was like an, ah. an angstrom yeah an angstrom uh it's sort of one of those relative measurements that is, okay. is just like, uh, I think it's the specific length of like the hydrogen bond or something like that. And then it's Wild. used for a bunch of other things. Yeah. Yeah. So starting things off with our electromagnetic spectrum, we always think of as light, is when we don't think of as light at all. It's radio waves. Mm-hmm. And I mean, radio waves, I think we're all like pretty familiar with. We've all like listened to the radio. You know, you can talk, you talk on a walkie talkie. That's a radio, right? It sends signals back and forth. Uh, sometimes we talk about like how far certain radio waves have traveled out into space. Like we've been broadcasting radio waves now for 200 years. Uh, so people sort of say like, oh, well, this is how far some of these waves will propagate it out into space. Now there's a little bit of like, um, it's sort of, it's, it, it is exactly ripples in a pond. Like that's what these waves are. Yeah. Um, so there is something to be said, like at a certain distance, the energy that these waves are still carrying is so low that they can't really be distinguished from like the background radiation mm -hmm. of the universe. So there's always like all these science fiction things of like, oh, well, we've been sending out these signals and what if they're picked up by some like incredibly predatory civilization? And it's like, yeah. And then like the Fermi paradox stuff comes in, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so you start with these super broad radiations waves that again we're quite familiar with from like a human perspective and we use them a lot because with a wavelength that long yes. they don't get bounced around by other things like mm -hmm. they don't get scattered by clouds which is why we can use them for things like radio and walkie-talkies and those communication efforts because mm -hmm. a really long wavelength it just kind of like moseys along it weaves around and over and under things as opposed to being like like a little bouncy ball that mm -hmm. you would throw and it would bounce like a whole bunch of times and it could hit a whole bunch of things in there this is a little, this is a lot more chill. Yeah. And this is interesting as well. Like if you, if you've ever been curious about the difference between like AM and FM frequencies mm. on the radio is that like AM is like an amplitude frequency. So it's more about like the height of the wave, but it's more that like, if you drive, uh, if you're driving like AM, you can pick up AM radio for further away from the radio tower because of yes. the way the wave's traveling. But if you go underground or something, you're going to lose those radio waves very, very quickly because they're oh. going to start hitting objects because they're kind of coming down at you. Whereas like FM is more going out kind of broadly, which is why it's easier to pick up FM like in a parkade or something like that when you're driving your car. But you can't pick up FM as far away because they're losing their energy much faster because of the way they're propagated. 
I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm not like an expert <laughs> on it, so like I would like fact check me on that a little bit. But like that is essentially the major difference. Like, and note it if you're like driving around and and like you're listening to AM radio and you go under like a plus fifteen in Calgary or like under a bridge, you'll cut out. It'll cut out a little bit. Um, whereas with FM, it won't do that as much. And again, it's just the different ways that these waves are propagated. I just want to let everyone know that when Davis was saying driving, he was holding an imaginary steering wheel. <laughs> In case I didn't know. Yeah. Good. Okay, well, you try to talk about driving without, like, miming the motion of, like, keeping your car on the road. In the, when I was talking about gymnastics, I continually tried to demonstrate things with my hands. So, uh, uh, and then after radio waves, mm-hmm. we get microwaves microwaves so you know like your science oven at home i was gonna say the, the, the oven of the future yeah that mm-hmm. you're not going to use to make plasma yeah uh, yeah <laughs> that you've promised us you will not do this experiment at home yeah so a microwave is uh it's the literal definition or like term for a, a wave of a certain length mm-hmm. um but we also call it our microwaves microwaves because they use Microwaves. Hooray! Uh, And I found a quote about this uh, from NASA, so it's probably right. It says, microwave ovens work by using microwaves about 12 centimeters in length to force water and fat molecules in food to rotate. The interaction of these molecules undergoing forced rotation creates heat and the food is cooked. Yes, and we will talk quite a bit about this this idea of the waves causing atoms and molecules to move because it's super important for some of the applications literally in this case the application of a microwave to heat stuff up yeah. uh, but it it different types of light will do different things to atoms and cause them to move in different ways and it becomes really critical in some arms of chemistry for like analytics and stuff and we'll get into that it's super yeah. fascinating but before we get to all of the cool chemistry uh, microwaves are not only used in microwaves they're also used in weather prediction mm-hmm. so have you ever heard of doppler radar that uses microwaves, as do a very fun word, scatter scatterometers, which is just fun. It looks like <laughs> scatterometers. Uh, I just wanted to say that word. And then ra- uh, radar uh, altimeters, Alt- altimeters. Yeah, altimeters. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so they use these because um, microwaves can penetrate clouds yep. and get through them, and then they can monitor monitor conditions underneath clouds. So it's like if you have a, a satellite high above and there's a hurricane, you're just going to see a bunch of clouds. You don't really know what's going on underneath it. But mm-hmm. if you use microwaves, then you can get underneath the clouds and see what's actually going on mm-hmm. uh, closer to the ground. It's it, cool. Interestingly as well, your cell phone works off of microwaves. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 So all of like <laughs> the 5G, LTE, like all those stuff over the years, they're all oh, in the mic. Yeah, they're all in the microwave spectrum. But this is why, this is sort of why there's this like conspiracy theory around... They're microwaving our brains. Well, that's literally it. This is, but they actually do say, it's like, this is why you should be careful about like sleeping with your phone next to your head and stuff. Mm. Because we don't really know the long-term effects of having these types of microwaves. Um, I did, I read a paper in university about an experiment that was done on rats, as a lot of biological Mm -hmm. experimentation is done, where they like basically like, you know, hit them up pretty hard with some powerful radio waves, um, not radio, sorry, microwaves. And then they cut them all open and saw try to see if they developed brain cancer. And, you know, I, I, I then designed an experiment based off of this paper because we were doing transformations in the lab where we were trying to, um, use plasmids to transform uh, basically we're doing like like a small genetic engineering experiment where you use plasmids from bacteria to transfer a new piece of dna into an organism and and get it to like you generally you just try to get it to like fluoresce that was pretty much all you could ever do (laughs) yeah that's all Um, that's all you do can you make it glow so i design i i devised an experiment trying to use like the class's cell phones to see if you could cause this type this mutagenesis 
through the electromagnetic force of microwaves. Of course, I was not successful. I did not manage to do it. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd probably be published right now. Yeah. But uh, we wouldn't um, be doing this podcast. Well, exactly. And like me and my me and the professor at the time, we had a conversation about it, and he was really interested in this idea. And he he kind of because I sort of had asked him is like, do we have a way of producing these microwaves that like isn't a microwave that will heat up all these cells and just kill them anyway? Uh, and then I kind of looked and that kind of caused me to go back. And he was like, well, no, there's nothing really that, that exists. So I went back and looked at like the methodology of the experiment and then compared it to like what your cell phone is putting out. And it was like, they were hitting these rats with like 10, 20 times the energy level that like your cell phone yeah. actually puts out. But it's this really fascinating thing that has, uh, it, it has driven this like conspiracy theory basically. Yeah. And, and it's a little ridiculous, but it also, but like most conspiracy theories or like, there's a, I don't want to say there's a nugget of truth at the center, but there's like, there is a seed that the, there's a seed of truth that the conspiracy theory has grown wild from. Yeah. And I think that that's where a lot of this, you know, the, this stuff around like the five G's controlling your brain sort of stuff, or it's giving everyone cancer. It's because while there is some science to suggest that there could be adverse effects of carrying around a little microwave machine in your pocket all the time. Yeah, and I think it's probably a good idea to not have it on you all of the time. But that's mm -hmm. also just like a mental health thing. Like, put your phone down every once in a while because it helps your brain. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But even like with microwaves, there's different lengths of microwaves within because it's one of the big ones, right? So it's got a bigger yeah. range. Um, so it's got things like there's C-band microwaves, which are medium length, and those can penetrate through clouds and dust and smoke and snow and rain, and these reveal the Earth's surface. There are L-band microwaves, and these are things used by like GPS. Uh and then there's communication satellites that use microwaves and they use C, X, and KU bands, I guess Q bands, but it's KU, mm -hmm. uh, to send signals to a ground station. So we've got all these different types of microwaves and there's even cosmic microwave radiation, <laughs> which I just had to say that way, yeah. uh, detected in 1965. And they were detected uh, throughout the entire universe. So it's coming from all directions. Uh, and this actually gave scientists some pretty cool clues about the Big Bang, which I think is mm, cool. That is really interesting, yeah. yeah. Cosmic microwave radiation. It just doesn't sound real, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, microwaves, I, I, every time I talk about microwaves, I can't help but bring this up or, like, laugh about it. Is like, we had all these prop books in the back room in the, like, in high school for, like, dressing a set for theater. Okay. And one of them was, like, microwave cooking for one. And it was one of the fun. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, unfortunate. But, like, it was so, it was, like, you could, it was, like, instructions on how to cook a turkey in the microwave wow. and stuff like that. Like, I, it was, it was pretty funny. It was, like. Like, you know, and it wasn't even like, like some is like first year university student, like how to cook in a microwave. It was like literally like, like here's a legit yeah. cookbook about how to do like literally everything in the microwave. Mm -hmm. Fun fact of the thing you can cook in the microwave that works really well is sweet potatoes. Take oh, really? Sweet, yeah. Oh, okay. Take a sweet potato, wash it, stab it a bunch of times with a fork all over, and then wrap it in a paper towel, put it in the microwave. And I think it's like five minutes and then you flip it over and you do five minutes hmm. and it's like soft and delicious oh, wow. and it takes oh. way less time than putting it in the oven yeah it's this is actually one of those interesting things too is like um they always sort of tell you like when you if you heat it like a baby's bottle in the microwave right if you heat the milk up and stuff like that you should always test it on your wrist because you don't you can't really visualize how hot it gets yeah. but like a microwave you can boil water in a microwave right you can uh, air quotations again <laughs> but you can right you can make like a uh, cup of noodles like a ramen you know i like made soup last night in it, the microwave exactly you make instant ramen <laughs> like but 
because of the way that a microwave heats up water and it's causing the molecules to rotate, you won't get an actual like rolling boil. So you can get water to this like 100 degree point or whatever, basically at boiling, but it won't look like it's boiling, oh. which is why you've got to be very careful when you heat up water in the microwave. Look at all these fun facts we have for you. I know. <laughs> you can do some you can do some really cool experiments with microwaves. None of them basically are safe. Like full stop. You should do none of them with your microwave like with mom's microwave in the kitchen or dad's microwave in the kitchen. Like none of those things. But you can find I knew there was a but. <laughs> you can find some cool videos on YouTube. Someone else has done them, you know. And then yeah, when you're a little bit more experienced, you can Pop out to your local junkyard and grab a microwave. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so moving on up the spectrum into even shorter wavelengths of light or higher frequency light, as you might also want to refer to it as. What do we got next, Sarah? Infrared! Now, this is one of my favorite types of light for a reason I will get to at the end of this section. Uh, <laughs> but this is uh, 300, to, uh, 300 gigahertz to 400 terahertz. I don't know what that means, but... It's... Yeah, I always forget my gigas and my teras because I'm 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 pretty good on the other end. Like yeah. I'm good with like my femtos and my nanos and my micros. Femtos, femtos is like nine, ten to the negative twelve or something. Uh, uh, maybe yeah, I think it's negative twelve. I said fun. that, then of course I didn't have it ready to go, so now I look stupid. <laughs> you don't look stupid. It's still a fun word. Um, but as I read my notes, I realize I actually wrote it down in a more understandable way. Uh, from about from about a thousand micrometers uh, to seven hundred and sixty nanometers. Yes, and so. So micrometers are 10 to the negative 6 meters. Yeah. Nanometers are 10 to the negative 9. So, so they're small. Yes, very yeah. small. Uh, much smaller than our, our um, radio waves or our microwaves. And this, as Davis mentioned before, is radiant energy that we feel as heat. So there are uh, kind of like two types of this. There's near-infrared. These are shorter ones. Uh, we don't feel them very much. This is like what's emitted from a TV remote. You're changing channels. Mm -hmm. And then there's far infrared, which are longer. And we feel this as intense heat, like sunlight or fire. The heat from those. <laughs> I like, in the note, I like didn't read sunlight or fire. I just read sunlight fire. Sunlight and I was fire. like, I'm super curious <laughs> to know what sunlight fire is. <laughs> it's fun when we do our own research. Um, but I, I also read something that everything with a temperature higher than five degrees Kelvin mm. emits uh, IR, which is infrared radiation. Um, and Kelvin is like super, uh, five degrees Kelvin is really, really, really cold. Yeah. So if you're unfamiliar <laughs> with the Kelvin scale, it was meant to kind of like, it basically was designed to be an, an absolute scale. So it was actually kind of designed based off of some mathematics around temperature and energies and things like that. So zero Kelvin is negative 273.15 degrees Celsius. Uh, I only remember this cause we use it a lot in chemistry, yeah. not absolute zero, but that, that, Zero degrees Celsius is 273.15. Yeah. Um, and basically, zero Kelvin is the theoretical temperature at which a molecule or any molecule or atom has zero energy, like has just no energy. Uh, the closest we've gotten is like, we've gotten to within a few like degree points of absolute zero now and like these extreme environments that we've like, you know, extreme experimental environments we've created, but we've never been able to get down to like absolute, absolute zero. Mm-hmm. Even space is not absolute zero because there's still like radiant energy from oh, yeah. stars and stuff. Yeah. Like the sun. The sun. And half of the sun's total energy is given off as IR. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. That's why we feel it's so hot. Yeah. Uh, and this is, uh, if you've ever had an incandescent light bulb, um, <laughs> like the light bulb <laughs> sitting over Davis and I right now. <laughs> like as we're slowly like melting in the recording studio. <laughs> it's very warm today. 
Um, yeah, it's a, an incandescent light bulb. The reason it gets so hot is you have only 10% of the energy it's creating is given off by visible light and 90% of it is given off as IR. This is why people were like, switch to your, uh, um, your compact fluorescence, which is in the other light bulb in this room that we're in, thankfully. Uh, and it's, these ones give off less energy as heat and more energy as light, which mm -hmm. is why the, the transition, because you'll save energy costs because you need fewer of them to actually light your room. This is actually uh, something as well, like in a heat wave, sometimes they'll say like, don't use your TV or your screens, which is really hard because often when it's that hot out, you just, you want to be inside <laughs> away from the sun and sit around. Yeah. But your TV is also giving, sure, it's giving off all this visible light. That's what you're watching, but it's giving off all of this infrared light as well. And it'll actually really heat up a room. I notice it most with my game console. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. It, you get, like, close to it, and you're like, this is very warm. <laughs> you, like, can't put anything near it. It's got to have its own shelf. I know, yeah. Mine just sounds like a jet engine now. Also that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we have this uh, IR. We can detect it with electronic sensors. This is where you get infrared cameras and night vision goggles because they use oh, yeah. IR a lot mm -hmm. of the time. That's yeah. right, that's right. Yeah. And so the way that this works is uh, something like uh, the electronic sensor that is detecting IR might be like a bolometer. And it has something called a thermistor. Thermistor? Something like that in it. And this just means a temperature sensitive resistor. So uh, this resistor, sensitive to temperature, uh, if there's heat, it causes a detectable change in the voltage across the thermistor. Which I wish I'd looked up how to pronounce, but I didn't. Uh, I'm just saying barrister in my head every time I say it, so it's not helpful. Uh, and so a night vision uh, equipment is has an advanced version of this bolometer, and it has a charged couple device uh, that are like imaging chips that are very sensitive to IR light. So these chips, they get hit with IR light, and they kind of absorb it, and they, they would make an image, and the images from these chips can then be reproduced in visible light for us to see, like translated. Yeah, it's like an electric signal, right? Like you think about yeah. like a photo plate on your camera and then the digital camera now, you know, an old school camera is capturing it on a photo plate right. and it's causing a chemical reaction. A new school camera is hitting a photo, a special, you know, photo plate, capturing all the electronic information from the light and then translating it into a reproducible image on another screen, basically. It's a very helpful metaphor. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah well, <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then it's also used in things like infrared sp spectroscopy, which I know Davis is just chomping at the bit to talk about. I'm moving my hands really weird. He's dancing. Um, because, well, so this is this is my say. I'm so glad you said that. Because this is literally what we talk. So infrared spectroscopy is the application of infrared light to run certain types of analytics on chemicals. So it's actually used in a lot of... Um, like forensic testing and things Ooh. like that because you can take a sample you can sort of you have to put it between like two salt plates because salt doesn't react to infrared light it like allows it to pass through it doesn't vibrate in this way it's like table salt yeah table salt like oh. it's like these special little plates like okay so this is a huge thing when we would do chemistry <laughs> is that like you do not wash the plates with water because you will literally it's literally it's a chunk it's a special crystal of salt a perfectly like clear crystal of of NaCl and if you want you have to wash it off with acetone mm -hmm. or non-polar solvents otherwise you dissolve it oh. and literally like they're expensive and like the TAs are like don't wash them with water <laughs> but yeah, so um, and the reason and so they're really good for detecting organic molecules. So they use this for different testing for certain things, like you know, for in forensic they might test for drugs this way and things like um. that. 
But what happens is, is like in a molecule, right? You have all of these atoms that are held onto each other in these bonds, right? And when you visualize it, we often think about these like, you know, basically it's like balls on a stick, right? Yeah, the stick and ball model. Exactly. So what happens when an infrared, and the infrared is at the right energy level to excite the bonds of an of a molecule, mm -hmm. and then they will bend and flex or stretch and contract. And then so one of the, we all, we used to call it like they would waggle. So we oh. do like a waggle dance. And That's it would, what Davis has been doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like I used to have professors that would literally do this thing where they would be like, so you've got like symmetrical waggling where it'd be like if you were pumping both fists at the same time and then like asymmetrical would be like you're going back and forth and they're like these super lame dance moves. It's like an, it's like an 80s dance class happening beside me. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but it's a super fast, it's super useful and you basically get this like, so you scan it with a spectrum of infrared light, like all these different wavelengths of infrared light and you see where you get these different patterns of the light being absorbed and relaxed and they tell you about the presence of different functional groups on a molecule yeah. and when you pair it with a bunch of other types of imaging uh, not it's not really imaging when you pair it with a bunch of other types of spectroscopy you can it's like a big puzzle it's so it's this is like the nerdiest thing i could say right now it's so much fun but it is because <laughs> Very it's a, nerdy. <laughs> because it's a puzzle and you can I basically take yeah all of these different pieces of information and build up what a molecule should be. So I've done like, we, I've had like tests in university where it's like, here's an infrared spectrum. Here's an NMR spectrum. Here's um, like, maybe they do give you one other thing or whatever. And then it'll like, here's a UV vis or here's a little bit of information. And then it'll be like, what's this molecule? Oh. And you can piece together exactly. And really this is stuff that really only works for certain types of organics, but like, you know, so you know things that are principally made of carbon, but for a lot of the things that we study in chemistry, those are the things we're interested in. We're, yeah. you know, unless you're, you know, and there are other types of spectroscopy that work really well for inorganic chemistry, uh -huh. but we'll get in those in a little bit. But yeah, so infrared is like super useful for this, uh, for this sort of technology in, uh, in chemistry and spectroscopy will come up with many more times in today's conversation. If you had any doubts about the nerdiness of Davis and I, that Davis got really excited talking about this. And then he was like, it's like a puzzle. And I was like, a puzzle. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's sort of funny, too, because like I am someone who does not enjoy jigsaw puzzles. Oh, my God. I love jigsaw puzzles all I, day. I do not like that type of puzzle. I like logic puzzles and some sorts of things like that. I'm much more like, a fan of jigsaw puzzles. Yeah. If there's a jigsaw puzzle out, I'm like, I need to sit there for hours and try to finish this now. Yeah, I am the complete opposite. I wouldn't <laughs> touch a jigsaw puzzle with a 10-foot pole. Where you give me a logic puzzle and I'm like... I get too, I get bogged down and I have a hard time thinking laterally. Mm. I get bogged down in the very literal. <laughs> uh, that's why I like a puzzle. You find the piece and you put it in. Mm. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, infrared, in addition to spectroscopy, is also used a lot in astronomy because <laughs> stuff in space is giving off uh, infrared light. And this allows us to see like complex structures in nebulous galaxies and large scale and the large scale structure of the universe. And this detects objects too cool to emit visible light, which I thought was really funny, but just uh, literally too cool. Not like too, but I put a, I put a, one of those like emojis with the sunglasses in our notes. Yeah. If this, if, if this were like a TV show, the, the like, or like that, like meme where the sun, like the pixelated yeah, sunglasses yeah. drop yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> too cool. Yeah. Uh, but oh. just too temperature cool mm -hmm. to emit visible light. We can see them uh, in IR. Uh, and this lo slightly longer wavelength than visible light and things means that it doesn't get scattered as much. So it can be used to see through stuff like dust and gas, which is helpful if you're trying to look at, say, newly forming stars in nebulas, which are big clouds of space gas. But the thing I have waited to <laughs> speak about in terms of infrared <laughs> is snakes. 
Snakes like pit vipers and boas. So they have uh, something called pit organs. Mm-hmm. Um, and these Wait, are... is that why they're called pit vipers? Yeah. Oh, yeah. amazing. Uh... <laughs> I did not know that. I literally didn't know that. I didn't oh. put that together until literally I see pit vipers and pit <laughs> organs on top of each other in the notes. I'm like, oh, wait a second. Clearly, I haven't talked enough to you about snakes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they say so pit organs. So if you look at the picture of a pit viper, um, it has it has like its eye, it has its nostril, and then kind of like down into the side of its nostril, there's another hole in its face. And this is a pit organ. And it's uh, something that has, it has a membrane and it can detect heat. So this works for pit vipers. So pit vipers have the more complicated ones. Boas have a more simplified version, but uh, they're ambush predators, right? So they are lie and wait predators. So it's not, it's not that they can detect heat from anywhere. Uh, I, I found some sources that said up to a meter away, other ones that said up to 40 centimeters away. But so you have a little snake and it's lying in wait, like super duper camouflaged into the grass um, or the leaves usually. And it's uh, it's just waiting for something to come close to it. And then it can be pitch dark. And if like a little mouse or something gets within that range, the heat that that animal is giving off is going to uh, enter this pit, uh, pit organ. And it's going to hit uh, this membrane. It's going to activate an ion channel called trip A or a much better name for it is a wasabi receptor, which is I just learned for this podcast and I'm very excited about it. I didn't know that before. Uh, and other animals have these wasabi receptors, these trip A1 uh, in their brains that helps them to, to, detect, to detect pungent irritants like from mustard plants. Um, but in the snakes, it's just much more sensitive. It's on this membrane. So the infrared radiation heats up the membrane and then the channel opens, this ion channel, when a threshold is reached. So it's about like 28, cent- or 28 degrees Celsius. Uh, from a mouse or squirrel about a meter away again. Um, And it can detect things as if the animal only has to be 10 degrees Celsius warmer than the ambient surroundings. As long as the ambient surroundings are relatively consistent, the animal doesn't have to be that much warmer than it. And as warm-blooded creatures, we're usually like a fair bit warmer than our environments. So it can really, uh, it can really detect this heat really fast. And so in the pit vipers, this membrane is in a hollow bony chamber and it's a, a hanging membrane. So it can really, it can lose heat really quickly. Like heat can dissipate so that it's not just like, it doesn't have all these after images basically. Like, you know, when you stare at a light and you look away and you have this like glow. Like when you stare at the sun. <laughs> also, I mean, don't do that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or like for me coming from theater, uh, if you're on stage yeah. and you're like walking mm. the, the stage so they can set light levels, I have this amazing ability to be on stage and just like look up at the grid and just scan and wherever I look, the light turns on. I have this an uncanny ability to stare right at as the light as it turns on. Uh, so you have that after image. So so that snakes don't have this after image, the membrane is in a hollow bony chamber to allow that heat to dissipate really quickly. Mm. Um, and it's not part of the, the sight system in the animal. It's part of the somatosensory system, which is the touch, temperature, and pain system. So it's really cool. So they, they can detect this and they can like, I'm doing air quotes now, they can see heat, mm-hmm. but it's not part of their vision system, which is really cool. Uh, and then in boas, like I said, it's simpler, so they don't have the big pit organs. Like if you think of like a ball python, it's really cute. Oh, they're so cute. They're like the puppies of the snake world. Hognose snakes are the puppies of the snake world, but boas are very close. Anyway. Uh, that's an, <laughs> the, the that's an oxymoron if I've ever heard one, the puppies of the snake world. Well, I'll show you pictures <laughs> after. Um, <laughs> so uh, if you look at like a... like the bows or the ball pythons, they have these like pits along, I'm poking my face, but you can't see it, like along their upper lip. 
they all have these little, they're like tiny little pits. They look more like indents. Um, and these can, uh, they contain temperature sensitive receptors as well, but it doesn't have that hanging membrane that the pit vipers have. So it's not as sensitive or accurate as a pit viper type, but they can still detect that heat. <laughs> there you go. Snakes. Fascinating. Infrared light, everybody. When Davis said when Davis said light, I was like, this was what I wanted yeah, to talk I was like, about. We're talking about <laughs> snakes, baby. Snakes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's super cool, right? And this is one of the interesting things about when you start to look at like the electromagnetic spectrum, but particularly area that's like right around the visible spectrum, is there are lots of animals in the animal kingdom yeah. that have a much greater range of beyond visible light, right? Uh, and they can see other things. So, you know, now that we're going, we're kind of moving along the electromagnetic spectrum. And now we're kind of you know, infrared and you go right into this, like the very tiny sliver of visible light. And then just beyond visible light, you've got like the ultraviolet light. And speaking of animals that can see in different types of light, mm -hmm. this is a very good one for that. So we have certain animals like bees. Mm -hmm. And birds. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of predatory birds will also see in the high UV spectrum and things like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. uh, and this can be really, really important for their relationships with flowers, which is where a lot of our bees and our insects... Bees, not birds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there are some birds that do... That's true, yeah. I get like humming, hummingbirds and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and there's a lot of birds will like land on flowers. But anyway, um, so flowers, they'll have pigments that actually absorb UV light. So if you look at... There's a whole bunch of uh, really cool pictures. Like if you just Google like UV flower and... It, the flower will look one way in visible light, like to us, and then they'll put on like a UV filter or something onto their camera. And you see that the flower, it's no longer marked the way that we see it. It might have like, the center is typically darker. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them will look like bullseyes so that uh, an insect flying around would be like, oh, go to the dark patch in the middle. Um, or however they see UV light. We don't really know how they're seeing because we're just like mimicking it <laughs> in our visible light spectrum. Um, or there can sometimes are stripes down the petals to direct the animal's focus in towards the center there. And uh, another thing that these UV pigments in these flowers uh, are doing, or these pigments that can absorb UV light, they also act as, as a protection, almost like a sunscreen to sensitive parts of the plant, like the reproductive organs. Mm. Uh, and some of these pigments are flavonoids, which is fun to say. Oh yeah, flavonoids. Mm -hmm. And de-aromatized isoprenylated fluoroglucanols. Well done. Good Thank job. You. That was good. That did go slow. I practiced that one a little bit. Um, <laughs> these are called dips. Uh, but yeah, so they have these and they can be, they can attract bugs. They can help to protect the sensitive parts of the plant. And they also, uh, some of them have been shown to have a bit of uh, lethality to larvae, which makes sense because then you can resist predation. What a multi-use thing. And the reason you would want to protect yourself from UV light is it can be very dangerous to your DNA. Yes, it can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. No, yeah, I was just going like, to say, like, certain certain wavelengths of UV light can break the double-stranded helix of DNA. It can break, oh, no. break your DNA and cause mutations and things, like break apart parts of the DNA, cause things to get in there, cause changes to be made. And that's why, you know, we always talk about you need to wear sunscreen, you need to wear sunscreen that protects you against, like, a and B especially, and things like that. Because um, the sun is the predominant source of UV light on our yes, planet. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And 
Yeah, so you just have to, these are very energetic types of lights. So now, yeah. you know, we were talking about infrared before, which is technically lower energy than visible light. It's sometimes hard to think about it that way because infrared light, it's radiant energy, so it heats you up. So you can kind of, there's this more perceptive feeling of it. But UV light is actually more energetic, and that's why it can, like, penetrate into your skin. It'll it'll damage your DNA and things like that, but it'll also give you a tan. So it's this, like, kind of... Um, trade-off i suppose or this the great challenge of wanting to get a good tan (laughs) (laughs) just stay pale forever uh i only say that because i don't tan i only burn um and some like uh artificial sources of this uv light Mm -hmm. are things like tanning beds of course uh black lights you know Mm -hmm. if they're making some glow uh welding equipment and lasers we'll get to lasers in a bit lasers And so we've got uh, UV light can be broken into UVA, UVB, and UVC. So UVA is the longest, and this one can damage DNA by penetrating deep into our skin, which Davis was saying can cause those mutations uh, in our DNA that can have deleterious effects. Uh, This causes immediate tanning, premature skin aging, certain skin cancers, and 95% of this type gets through the ozone layer, so you really want a sunscreen that's going to protect you from UVA. And then UVB can only penetrate the outer layer of skin, and this causes delayed tanning, sunburns, and most skin cancers, but 95% is absorbed by the ozone layer, so only 5% of UVB gets through, but you still want something to protect you from UVB because it's a very dangerous one. Uh, And then UVC is the most dangerous. This is the shortest wavelength of our UV light. Uh, It's very dangerous to all life on Earth, but it does not reach the surface because it's filtered out by the ozone layer. Thank gosh. And like, and just to talk about like what the ozone layer does to sort of stop some of these rays of light. So ozone is O3. We're typically very familiar with oxygen being O2, but ozone has a third oxygen molecule uh, atom on it. Triumvirate. And yes, it is a triumvirate. (laughs) And oxygen is a bit of a free radical, but it's got the right um, bond length to interact with these certain wavelengths of light. And so a lot of times what will happen is they'll get hit by UVA, UVB, or UVC, UVC especially, UVC especially, and that will cause the bond to break and it'll break up into like oxygen and a free radical or whatever. It's a whole process that happens in the ozone layer and it's part of like the ozone's layer ability to regenerate itself as well and things like that. But it's essentially like the ozone is at this perfect size to interact with these wavelengths and protect like you know, life on earth. And that's why like when the CFF CFCs were a big, the chlorofluorocarbons and were the a big hydrofluorofluorocarbons. Issue. Hey, well, my goodness, <laughs> were such a big issue for manufacturing and from like freon use and things like that was because they were burning a hole in the ozone layer that was causing some of these much more energetic UV uh-huh. radiations to get to earth and cause damage to ecosystems and things like that. Which we don't want. No, you do no, not. No, no. Yes. Um, but sometimes UVC is created artificially to kill bacteria. Because it's so mm-hmm. deadly. Absolutely, yeah. Um, sometimes you've seen, like, uh, you can do, like, you. I've seen these, like, UV light boxes. They're, like, sanitation boxes where you mm. put something in. And it's basically just, like, special light bulbs right. on every surface. And they just, like, <laughs> and, like, irradiate whatever's in there and just kill anything that's on it. Yeah. So, yeah, we don't want that coming uh, down to us. Not good. No. And this is, like, when I mentioned we were talking about radio waves. Uh, they're really long. And the shorter wavelengths are, like, a bouncy ball kind of going. Mm-hmm. And they can get mm-hmm. hit by a bunch of stuff. UV is closer to the bouncy ball, right? Bouncing along, and then this is ozone is the perfect size to interrupt its uh, mm-hmm. bouncy little, happy bouncy little life. Mm-hmm. Or I guess it would be here's a fun example. Uh, it's like a dashend versus a Great Dane. 
the Great Dane's like the radial wave, so it's like really big and it can just like step over all these obstacles. <clears throat> Whereas a Dashen has to like take all these little steps and it's gonna crash into all the obstacles. <laughs> Sorry, there, there was there was this there was this this is going back to a video that I love from uh it was for like high school or something. And there's there's a sport this is totally off topic. There's a sport called flyball in dog agility. So what it is, it's like four little hurdles and then at the end is this like incline ramp with a tennis ball stuck in it so the dogs have to go and jump over the hurdles and then get the tennis ball like jump on the platform get the tennis ball and run back on the four hurdles over the four hurdles and there was this one team and it had like three dashins and a great dane and it was so funny because the dashins are working so hard the little legs like run run jump run run jump and they get it and the great dane just goes and is like loping along it's like one step between it's amazing so there you go dogs for light (laughs) I, I was like, I was like, I don't know how effective an analogy is if it also requires you to have a specialized knowledge of another area. Like, oh, you better know your dog species if you want to get this. Uh, your breed, breed. Dachshunds sorry. are your wiener dogs. I should have said that. We, and everyone knows that. And then Great Danes are the really big everyone. ones. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm such a rube because I don't watch the Westminster Dog Show every year. I don't watch the Westminster My Dog gosh. Show. My oh, gosh. This oh. is agility, man. Oh, jeez. Better. Anyway. Yes. Um... <laughs> I'm going to shoehorn dogs and snakes snakes and and everything uh, and sharks and everything. Sharks and everything. But yeah, uh, going back to light, (laughs) UV UV and visible light are often paired together in spectroscopy. It's something called UV-vis spectroscopy. And and basically what it involves is you take, uh, basically you can take a beam of light and then you have something called a monochromometer. And that's like <laughs> the worst pronunciation I've ever done. It's one of those words that it's like you might get it right 10% of the time and you just got to keep on moving forward. Nobody notices a stumble on a galloping horse. Monochromometer. Yeah. Uh, basically what it is is it's a it's a plane of glass where there are all these little segments of it. And like you basically like turn it and it will allow you to get like a monochromatic piece of light out. So when you think about white light, just like Newton proved, it's made up of all these different wavelengths Mm -hmm. of light moving in all these different planes and basically meaning that the like amplitude of the wave is going in different directions. So it might be going up or down or left or right and everything kind of in between. And what you can then do is you can pass it through either certain types of lenses or special mirrors and you can select for single types. So basically with these mono, uh, mono, chromators or whatever you want to call them work is that like they'll allow when you angle them certain ways is they'll allow certain light to pass through and then they'll reflect the beam of light that you're interested in and basically what you do is you scan all of the spectrum like you you span this whole section of the spectrum of light and you look for areas where the light is absorbed versus transmitted or so goes through to the other side and there's a ton of different applications of this there's some very clear-cut like scientific laws like the beer lambert law that allows you to make a relationship between like how much light is transmitted through a sample of a certain type of a certain length that allow with a certain coefficient and it'll tell you like oh well this is how much of a certain substance is in this one sample so you can use it to do it's actually sort of like um, if you want to figure out how much caffeine is in a certain beverage, you can do this. You do an extraction, you try to get like the caffeine out of the drink, you break it down into certain like a, a known concentration or you kind of have like proportionalities for your sample. You put it in one of these special machines and then buy the instruments, sorry, the special <laughs> instruments. Uh, I had some TAs that were very serious about the correct nomenclature of calling them instruments. Yeah. So naturally we just used to bug the crap out of them by calling them gadgets and every other permutation <laughs> of the word. But uh, basically what happens is then you can detect like, so you can say, okay, well this amount of light was 
transmitted, which means this amount was absorbed. You run it through a very simple calculation uh, and based off of like a standard curve. And then you say, oh, okay, so that means that this sample much of, must have had this much caffeine in it. Okay. It's actually an experiment we did in like second or third year chem labs where you take like Coke, a cup of coffee and a bunch of other things and you figure out how, what, what has the most caffeine. Yeah. Super fascinating. Sounds like magic. Well, <laughs> it's not magic, it's science. Oh. But yeah, so it's um, like you can use this application and basically you can scan a substance. So that's one application of UVVis, but you can also like scan a substance, see where things are absorbed. And then based off of a knowledge of like certain molecules absorb certain things, just like ozone absorbs the right. UVC and stuff like that, you can make a determination on like what is in your sample sometimes. And again, what the concentration is. Uh, used to do this with like a, there used to be an iodine experiment used to do where you have mm -hmm. iodine crystals in a vacuum tube basically and you can heat them up and it causes the iodine crystals to vaporize some of them and you can determine kind of how much iodine is in the atmosphere at a certain oh. time by passing the light through it and stuff so That's it's cool. a it's super it's super super interesting and again you you go you use these things in tandem with all these other types of spectroscopy and you can start to determine like what th certain things are how much of something there might be in a substance and, and all those sorts of things very cool. So that's that's pretty neat. So that's UV. And now we're going into the real science fiction-y stuff, which is always <laughs> fun. So now we're into everybody's favorite, the X-ray. X-ray. I, I don't know why I said it was everybody's favorite. I just was just the next one we're going to talk about. I uh, think my favorite is infrared. We yeah, exactly. That, we're, that's yeah. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> we're already past everyone's favorite. But yeah, so X-rays were originally observed in 1895 by a scientist by the name of Ronkin. Um I couldn't type it properly because it's got a lot of a little like the umlauts and stuff oh. like that. But uh, he was working with some vacuum tubes in his lab, which was one of the ways, the early ways they were generating these different spectrums of light. Mm -hmm. And he later took like, and, and with this sort of observation he made, he took a picture of his wife's hand and it, that was the first x-ray as uh. we you know so x-ray is a colloquial term that we use for x-ray imaging that's done like diagnostic imaging that's done in medicine obviously you know you, you've probably seen one it looks at your bones if you've ever broken a bone unlike me weaklings no i'm just kidding <laughs> uh, also, I know, <laughs> unnecessary feel personally attacked if somebody <laughs> broke a bone uh but also if you, uh, you know, have gone to the dentist yes, or an orthodontist yes. and you have to get your a better example. Teeth. Yeah. It's a less, ag less, ag less aggressive, aggressive attacky yeah. example. So judgy. Uh, <laughs> but anyway. Yes. So yeah. So it allows you like, so basically x-rays, they'll penetrate through a lot of things and allows you to sort of see through things. And uh, Ronkin took a picture of his wife's hand and allowed, and you could see the, the, um, you know, the skeleton under her hand, you could see the ring on her hand. Yeah. Like, cause it was one, those are the things that x-ray won't penetrate certain metals, stuff like that. And people, this was at a time too, like 1895, people were very into the sciences. Mm -hmm. You know, scientists could basically sell out auditoriums to show yeah. off cool things, especially things they were doing like with electricity and stuff. Time. I, yeah, absolutely. Right. Like when the world, like, you know, world's fairs were really big mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But the, the, the public was just like electrified by this, uh, by this discovery. And so at the time, he proposed it was a type of radiation correctly, but he didn't, it would take a number of years before it was discovered as a, as a type of light. It would take till 1912 for it to be correctly identified as, as light. Uh, but that's why he called it the X-ray, because it was, it was unknown, but he knew it was some type of radiation. 
And now one of the most famous applications of the X-ray in science is in a type of imaging called X-ray crystallography. Okay, well, obviously the most no known one is the medical <laughs> the imaging. The X-ray. The X-ray, right? <laughs> but uh, in sort of like in certain types of analytics and certain types of imaging, it, uh, it allows you to basically, so you have to suspend something in a solid crystal and what happens is the x-ray so x-rays are really neat among light like you think about like both sarah and i wear glasses and the way that glasses work is they slow certain rays of light that as as light is coming through it's getting refracted so it's interacting with the molecules of glass which are silicon dioxide and it is causing that light to bend and and it's and it's changing direction. So you can do this. You know, you take classic experiment. Take a cup of water, stick a pencil in it, and if you look at it from the side, it looks like the pencil is basically being like broken. Yeah. Right. And that's this refraction of light. The light is traveling different through the medium of water than it is through the medium of air. And so glasses basically work on this principle of they're focusing the light to help your eye capture this light better because your lens is too weak to properly focus the light yeah. uh, or misshapen in my case as well, where I have like astigmatism. Yeah. So you have yeah. to have it sort of shaped properly for you. And you can test this out if you uh, like if you're nearsighted and you have a friend who's farsighted and you switch glasses, mm -hmm. the, the glass is going to be built in a different way to focus light in different parts of your eye. And it... Uh, it can be real weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but the interesting thing about x-rays and some of these higher energy waves of light is they cannot be refracted in the oh. same way because they're not, they can't even be reflected off of mirrors and things like that. Unless Vampire they're, light. Unless they're, yeah, unless they're mirrors made of spe special materials that are going yeah. to reflect x-rays, like are not going to allow x-rays to penetrate them. But, so this means that like you cannot create a microscope for x-rays, but you can do other things because you know that nothing can refract it. Uh -huh. So it's almost like the opposite application. So you basically can take something and you can like suspend it in a special crystal. You basically grow a crystal. And even into the fact where you don't have to have something in the crystal. This is how we determined a lot of crystal structures. Like mm -hmm. think of a ruby, which we'll talk about a little bit later when we get okay. to lasers, uh, which is why <laughs> I was sort of on my mind. But the ruby has a specific chemical structure a repeating lattice of molecules of, of atoms in it that give it its properties mm -hmm. and you can grow you have to grow like a perfect crystal of it a single crystal and then you can image it with uh, x-ray diffraction you can use the spectroscopy and it then it'll allow you to identify the structure how those mm -hmm. atoms are suspended together and it can allow you to determine like oh this is what a ruby is made out of and like this is what the unit cell is and all these things cool and the, yeah, so the principle that it works off of is you fire a ray of x-rays at something, then some of them are going to go straight through that sample and others are going to bounce off and go in a bunch of different directions. And then you're going to have basically this massive like photo plate all around your sample. And then you're going to like basically interpolate from where, so you know the source of your x-rays, then you know where the x-rays hit. So you can interpolate back to figure out what are they hitting at what angles and, oh. and basically image where something is. And this is actually what was allowed um, people to discover the, uh, the shape of DNA, the double mm -hmm. helix structure of DNA. And often we attribute the discovery of, what, uh, of the structure of DNA to Watson and Crick. That is nope. uh, incredibly inaccurate and is uh -huh. a great disservice to one of the great women in science, Rosalind Franklin, yep. who died, unfortunately, very young at the age of 36 uh, and had 
many, many more things that she would have contributed to science. Uh, she had a PhD. At the time, women were not allowed to get bachelor's degrees, but she managed to get all the way up to a PhD. She had like, a, I can't remember what they call it. It's like a title bachelor or something like that. It's anyway, um, but she was a, an extremely talented X-ray crystallographer and she had done the original imaging of suspending DNA in a crystal, imaging it with X-ray diffraction. And then when Watson and Crick wrote their book and their groundbreaking groundbreaking paper they didn't even cite Rosalind's yeah. work fortunately history has really vindicated Rosalind Franklin and she's someone who we remember very well and is always talked about in in chemistry lectures especially because of her massive contribution to science and especially yeah. because again like many many great women in astronomy mm -hmm. and physics especially um they never they didn't get their due in their time and it's and it's become very important in the science education of today to really honor the these people and even to the point where more so than we should honor someone like Watson and Crick who basically kind of stole parts of this just saying <laughs> but it's just, it's one of those stories that I like because again it's it, she's really been vindicated by history yeah and again, but this is, she took all these images and was able to sort of definitively show the structure of DNA. And so x-rays is one of the ways that we've started to get really close to being able to image the atom. And I, I use air quotations again, because you cannot see an atom. Like this is like a hugely important principle, like in, because we've gotten very close. We can see where atoms should be and their effects. And we can get, we've gotten to this insane point in certain types of imaging where you can get you can use all these crazy nanotechnologies and things like that to basically see like this is where an atom would be or you I think I've talked about atomic force microscopy on the podcast in the past which is not to really to do so much with the spectrum of light but it has to do with quantum mechanics but it allows you literally to image a surface like atom by atom oh. but what you are seeing is not the atom it's a, it's again it's like a computer reconstruction and it's based off of the sig where the signals are but this x-ray crystallography was where we started to step into this world of getting closer and closer and closer to seeing molecules and atoms at molecular and atomic resolutions, which is just fascinating to, to me personally. Very cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anything to add about x-rays? I think you covered it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next one is gamma rays. Every Marvel fan's favorite electromagnetic spectrum. Maybe not Bruce Banner's favorite, but... Or maybe his favorite. That's true. Who it knows? depends. Uh, but anyway, so gamma rays, uh, obviously what turned Banner into the Hulk. The Hulk! Uh, and we don't have a ton to say about them because they're, they're so short. There's such a high energy wavelength. They're very powerful. They're very dangerous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they're really not worked with very much. Uh, so we don't have a lot to say about them. Yeah, there's some theories to suggest that like you could use gamma radiation to treat cancer cells because they would kill the cells so quickly. Uh, it, it is used a little bit in astronomy. We mm -hmm. take some gamma. We do gamma radiation scans of the universe, basically, and it's it's become part of the suite of all, like you can take like a visible light spectrum of like, you know, the galaxy or whatever. Then you can do infrared. You can do mm -hmm. ultraviolet. Then you can do gamma and x-ray. And you can start to see all of these different things. So some it's of- so cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and obviously they're all visualizations so it's just like we've been talking about you take the signal and then you interpret it using a computer or you by hand even in the really old school cases yeah. and you basically just sort of say oh, okay well this signal will be purple 
and then the <laughs> signal will be blue. And you draw these very wonderful images from it. Uh, but it's the really high energy things in the universe that give off these gamma ray rays. So it's things like the areas outside of black holes yeah. or pulsars, quasars, those sorts of things. Um, All the cool stuff that uh, they go to in Star Trek. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, and it's, and it, so it's, it's got some uses. It's just not as like, it's just not as well understood. And again, like x-rays, they cannot be like refract, re <laughs> they cannot be refracted. They cannot be reflected. I almost said both words at the same time and it didn't work. Um, so these are like the ultra vampire rays. Yeah. And so basically these were discovered a couple years after x-rays were proved to be a type of light. And so in 1914, they were shown to reflect off the layers of a crystal, much like x-rays did. And that was how they sort of determined that it was a form of light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then finally, after talking about all these forms of light, I hung, can get... Yeah, I made you wait, Kyle. But this is for you, baby. This is this is it. This is the big one. This is lasers. <laughs> <laughs> we entertain ourselves yes absolutely so so yeah so that's sort of the whole spectrum of light all the way from microwaves to gamma rays a little bit about all of them uh and i mean there again like there are people whose entire scientific careers are dedicated to like a sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum basically right and even to the point where it took what like 300 years of science for us to like really identify like all of this yeah. and then that's to say is like who knows if there's another radiation beyond gamma rays, right? Yeah. Like you, you, it's it's very difficult to to see to to potentially tell like where some of these things are. Because if you don't know if something exists, how do you detect a thing that doesn't exist? Absolutely right. And then go, going back even to this, like the creative thinking in science. Yeah. And this is where we get into this interesting um, principle around lasers. Lasers. So laser. So. The idea, okay, so what is a laser? We bring them up, I bring them up all the time. It's the super interesting case study in science is more of like a technology outpacing theory, those sorts of things, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But a laser is an acronym. A laser stands for light amplification, amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. A little bit one of those ones that's like, did you kind of have a name first and then you just sort of <laughs> pick some words for it? But it actually has a history of why it's it's got that structure to it and why it's called the laser. So when you think, basically what it is, is it's it's exactly what it says it is. You are amplifying light in a specific way through radiation that is being emitted by special molecules or atoms that are being held in a chamber. And then you amplify that light and you can produce a laser. Right. So this principle of light was basically originally described by Einstein. It's actually oh. what he won his Nobel Prize for in 1921 is his work on what's called the photoelectric effect, which we've sort of been discussing without using that name. So when we were talking about the aurora and you are exciting certain molecules, then they relax back down to the, their ground state or their oh. kind of lowest energy state. They release a photon of light. That's the photoelectric effect. Is this like spectrum emissions? It is like spectrum okay, emissions. Okay. It's exactly like that. So basically Einstein theorized that this was possible, that, 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 um, that things would behave in this way. And so, and then it took about another 30 years and then people started to play around with this idea. So the precursor to the laser is known as the maser, the oh. microwave amplification by simulated 
emission of radiation. So that's sort of, again, that's why like laser then comes later. But the maser did not use visible light. So it's not a visible laser in the same way. But it was uh, originally invented in 1954 by two, two gentlemen, Towns and Shaolo. I have no idea how to say his last name. But funnily enough, um, spell check knew how to spell it. Nice. <laughs> and it autocorrected it. Um, and so they basically used like ammonia and another gas in a tube. They excited it with microwaves and they were able to produce this the maser right so uh and we'll kind of go into like when we're talking about lasers we'll go into like how the amplification happens but so glad maser didn't stick laser so much more fun i know exactly right (laughs) and but so they didn't they then sort of proved that this this uh this thing was possible that had been sort of theorized and they also theorized that well if we can do this with microwaves you can probably do it with lasers but for whatever reason they never took up the research but other people did And so the first laser was really invented in, so the first, the term laser was originally coined in 1959 by a guy named Gordon Gould, but he failed to patent his sort of, his creation, his design, because he started to work really hard on a visible laser design. He failed to patent it, and it wasn't until like 12, 13 years later that he was able to like, his patent was finally kind of awarded, or it's it's a whole like legal Mm, thing, but it it allowed people to kind of like make use of his technology um so steal it for lack of a better term um (laughs) and so the first successful optical laser so using like visible light was built in 1960 by theodore h mayman and he used a ruby matrix so the way that a laser works is you have this medium that you are exciting you are you are you are putting energy into it and you are causing some of the electrons in the atoms in this matrix to jump up to a higher energy state. Now, everything in the quantum in quantum mechanics is it's different from regular New- Newtonian physics, right? So, uh, a good example is like a lot of things in Newtonian physics are more like continuous, or um, you think about like discrete versus continuous variables, right? So, uh, human beings' height is continuous. You could assemble all of the basically. It's like in theory, is there there is someone at every single increment of height mm-hmm. from you know the shortest human to the tallest human. Uh, and there's there's the potential for anyone to exist at any point along that graph, essentially. Discrete more means that you can kind of have like one or two or three or four, but nothing in between. Okay. And so in quantum mechanics, everything is discrete. So right. you can only, so an atom has electrons that can only exist at certain energy levels. They want to be at their ground state or their zero state, but they can get excited to go up. So we've talked, I think, in the past about like glow-in-the-dark stuff and phosphorescence yeah which is essentially what or or fluorescence is like this too where it's you are exciting an electron up and then it is relaxing back down and it is emitting a photon of light as that energy is lost it absorbs a photon gets excited relaxes releases a photon it's exactly what's the aurora what's causing the aurora exactly and that jump the step between ground state and state one or whatever state it might be and back down it is proportional to a wavelength of light. So that photon that comes out will be an exact wavelength of light specific to the element. So what you do in a laser is you excite all of these atoms uh, and then you're trying to get to this point of what's called population inversion, where normally you would have all of most of the electrons at the ground state. A few of them would be up a little higher, you know, because we're talking about billions and billions and billions of little objects. And, but for the most part, most of them are at the ground state. 
then you want to invert that population. So you want to have more of them above this ground energy state. And then they're going to start to emit light in general ways. And then it sort of becomes like self-sustaining almost. Mm. And then basically what you do is you have a special tube where you're basically then just like reflecting this light back and forth until you build up <laughs> enough of it. And then you pass it through like a tube essentially. And, that, and you're now putting out a continuous... Well, not always continuous, but you were putting out a single wavelength of light in a single like plane polarization as well. So if you, you do you have like have you ever use like polarized sunglasses? Yeah. Yeah. So if you have polarized sunglasses and you look at like a TV screen so or weird. any sort of LED like your screen. Phone. Yeah, and then if you sometimes you have to like turn your head, but it will actually like black out the screen. Yeah. <laughs> and, and or like 3D movies, right? Yeah. You are wearing two polarized lenses that are different polarizations and it's basically the same as the red and blue old school 3d but rather than doing it with two different colors and two different colors of film that are slightly overlaid on each other and then when you get rid of the color it comes out as like a 3d image it's the same principle but you're actually using two different like polarizations of light so if you take three glasses and you pop the lenses out one is polarized in one direction and the other is polarized in another direction and if you lay them over each other it'll like black out whatever's behind them. Oh. Even again. Trick to try. Yeah. Or even like on your computer monitor screen or your TV screen, there is a film in front of the screen that is a polarized lens. Uh, again, it's the same sort of sheet. So you can actually make like privacy glasses for a monitor by taking the screen that screen out making lens like making little lenses out of the like cutting it out of the film putting it in something like a cheap pair of glasses frames or on like lenses and then what will happen is your screen will just look like white light but when you put these glasses on it'll filter everything out just like it is filtering like a normal screen filters ah, yeah it's super clever. fascinating and basically what this means is, like I said earlier, light is moving in these waves. Some of them are saying going like up and down on the X-axis. Some are going up and down on the Y-axis, Z-axis, like all in between and basically like a, all, every possible angle. Mm. And plane polarization allows only one of wow. these to get through. And so this is essentially what a laser is. And so there are all these different types of lasers that are based on like the medium that you're using and then the, wa la the wavelength of light that comes out. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you mentioned rubies earlier? This is why I mentioned rubies, because this first optical laser that Maiman built was a ruby matrix, and it works with a few other crystals as well. A lot of the lasers that we use now, like the laser that's in your CD reader and those sorts of things, they're semiconductor lasers. So they're not as powerful as other lasers, but... but Probably they, good. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's what makes them so useful for consumer, uh, consumer electronics, because they can be much smaller. They need way smaller power sources. Because some ex some lasers that are used in like scientific experimentation, they're entire rooms yeah, yeah. because they require so much power and they require so much kind of space to make this thing happen. But basically it's based like entirely off of this principle of like of quantum mechanics, of quantum electronics. And and this is why like not all lasers have are outputting visible light because sometimes the wavelength that they're putting out is different. Uh is different wavelengths and things like mm. that. Mm -hmm. So how does this transfer to like laser guns? Like, well, okay, like lasers and like certain technologies, like the barcode scanner and stuff like that, or like no, like 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 Star Trek. Oh yeah, like if you have well, like or like Star Wars, where you have like someone shooting laser. Is that even 
a possible thing or is that just sci-fi it's it's sort of both it's it really is like it's pretty science fictiony okay. because like okay so in the 80s reagan uh in this like president reagan uh he proposed this like the space wars or whatever so he's called it the star wars project it was literally called the star wars project oh my god this, i'm getting such deja vu to a few years ago <laughs> exactly space <laughs> force it was like literally what it was right but there's long with this dream of like laser application for um for war essentially right and the reason for this is just like in the name it's light amplification so um you've probably you may have seen like uh heard of like constructive and deconstructive waves so if you have waves that are in phase with each other they build on each other so it's like putting two speakers beside each other that are playing the exact same piece of music in the exact same time it's going to sound really loud because those two waves are building off of each other because they're in phase and they're the exact same so they make it seem like it's a wave like double the height yeah right but if you were to somehow play the inverse of that piece of music from that same speaker, it would be destructive because now the plane, now the waves are moving in the opposite plane and they are destroying each other essentially. So it actually sound, if you could do it perfectly, it would sound like silence. Is this a noise canceling headphones? Yes, exactly. Okay. A noise, like I'm literally wearing noise canceling headphones right <laughs> now because I monitor, like I monitor the podcast as we record it. And what it does is like, cause often noise canceling headphones need a power source. Yeah. Right. So when you turn it on, it takes like a quick second of the um, the the background noise. So it works really well on like a plane, right? Where it's this long drone, yeah. and it's it's listening to the environment, and then it's creating a destructive wave so based cool. off of that. Or even like when I go to edit this podcast, we always have to take like ten seconds of uh, right, of, yeah. of blank sound at the very beginning, because and then. Uh, and then basically what it does is says, okay, this is the noise profile of your background noise. And then all throughout the rest of the sound file, get rid of this specific wavelength and destroy it essentially within the digital recording. And so it takes it away from the other waveforms that are being recorded. Yeah. And so this is, so, but with a laser, you are putting out energy, you are putting out light that is all in the same plane and in the same phase. So it's constructive. Okay. So certain really high powered lasers can be used to like cut things and things yeah. like that. We've yeah. known that for a little while now. James Bond. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I have the helpful analogies. <laughs> and, and this is why there's often been this idea of like, well, could you use lasers for like military applications right there's been some talk of like you can use a laser on an airplane to shoot down missiles because you can Mm. basically like heat the missile up or whatever but it's basically just because you're conferring so much energy through this thing of light that you're going to heat something up right or you're going to do all you're going to have this major effect on it um and like so that's why even like lasers are now used in certain uh physical therapies because you can like blast someone's muscle with a special laser and it's a it's a specific modality and it's supposed to help the muscle relax it's help someone who's been injured regain range of motion so that they can do other exercises that will help them actually heal and things like that right the laser's not going to heal you in and of itself but it's going to help you like access your own healing better or like your own ability to self-care better yeah Neat. and so like but with something like a barcode basically what lasers allowed us to do is that because they are it's always the same wavelength of light it's always going in a in a single direction you basically like the x-ray with the x-ray diffraction you can tell you can make these sort of like okay it's always coming from this source it's always behaving in this way so like a barcode for example you're shooting a laser at a series of black and white lines 
the black lines are going to absorb light, the white lines are going to reflect it, ah. and then the laser, there's a receptor in the barcode reader that says, okay, I shot a laser, and this is what I got back. And then it goes through a computer and it sort of says, okay, well, this pattern means this coat. Mm -hmm. And that is this object within the database of the grocery store or whatever. Yeah. So that's why like lasers have, they blew up into all these different applications because you have this good understanding of like you, it's basically that you have a fixed point, you know, what's coming out and then you can make, you can do all of these different things with it. Mm-hmm. very cool and they're relatively safe as long as you don't stare right at them yeah and, <laughs> and this is one of these interesting things i actually discovered while i was doing this research right so some really powerful lasers especially the ones used for research they always have all these warnings on yeah. them and like you you have to wear special goggles to work with them and stuff like that and some lasers will even they won't cause damage to your eye immediately because some of the wavelengths of light that they're putting out are not going to get through or or they're not going to get like refracted by the lens and hit the retina like that's the traditional one right like you look at a laser it hits your retina it burns your retina and it blinds you but some lasers can even cause like later damage like cataracts because it's actually your lens that's going to absorb it but it's all of this extreme amount of energy that your lens is absorbing and then later down your line it's going to start to like calcify and cause cataracts and stuff like that yeah don't point lasers at each other, everyone. No. I mean, that was something that happened in the Euros was like in the Euro Cup, the soccer uh, that I was reading about was that there was a fan <gasps> who was shining one of those green lasers that what are a off dick. The, yeah, in the <laughs> keeper's eyes during like penalty kicks. And the, the fan is apparently like they figured out who it was and like has apparently been like banned from like every oh, good. soccer match. Like, and yeah, well, exactly. Cause it's super, super dangerous. Yeah. Like those green lasers, especially like those laser pointers that you can get, yeah. they're very, very powerful. Most places you can't even get them anymore because like you can get the it. red ones. Or yeah. White. Yeah. No, the green ones that you can get now, those are like these crazy powerful lasers that okay. can cause like, yeah, they can cause serious damage to people's eyes. So that's what we put on sharks. <laughs> I think, like, that's sort of the thing about, like, if you're, like, the the dream of, like, sharks with laser beams on their head, right, would be, like, it would be this incredibly powerful laser. Like, the sharks would all just, like, sink to the bottom of the ocean because it would be this massive apparatus. Um, Oh, no, the evil evil scientists are going to figure it out and make it, mm -hmm. like, wearable. Yeah. And so that's, I think, one of the big things, like, yeah, sure, like, the miniaturization of technology has come a really long way, but it's pretty hard to create, like a laser the size of like a wieldable gun that would put out like so much energy that it would instantly burn a hole through somebody Uh. so it's more likely that like yeah like the lasers from star trek or like i guess it's like they're phasers in star trek but like or like the the laser guns from star wars like more likely than not if those weapons were to really exist with the way that we understand technology now they would be plasma so it would look like a laser would be this bright tracer like flying through the air but it would be actual material rather than pure light like the lightsaber would be plasma not light exactly and i mean again this is all science fiction so there's no and again this is like who knows in a hundred years of technology what's possible maybe it will be possible to have like Mm. laser weapons or something i don't know not i'm not really saying that i'm holding my breath for laser weapons like (laughs) i think there's other cool things we can do with them without (laughs) using them to hurt each other yeah but so there you go lasers finally explained yeah not just mentioned in passing it mentioned in passing (laughs) or just as a case study for how technology works yeah well yeah um Hopefully you enjoyed this uh, little sojourn into the uh, into the the spectrum of electromagnetism. 
It's a weird way to say yeah, it. Yeah, it's the wordiest way to say it. <laughs> Light, etc. Light, et Light and stuff. <laughs> but yeah, um, but this is just to prove to you that if you do tell us a topic that you want us to cover, we will in fact cover it. Yep. And not just because there's nothing in the news, but because we're interested in talking about it. Yeah, I mean, maybe because there's nothing else in the news that we haven't already talked about. Yeah. But that's great. We were trying to figure it out. Yeah. And David said he had this recommendation. It was like, let's do it. We've Bingo, been waiting. Bingo, bongo, baby. Why? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I think that's a good cue for us. Uh, this room has gotten very hot. It's so warm. Um, yes, if, you, uh, if you're if you looking for something to do after this, check out Third Sock from the Sun on YouTube. Uh, the plastic series. I just released the final one in the plastic series, so check mm -hmm. it out. Let me know what you think. I also made an Instagram, so I'm on Facebook and Instagram now with oh all goodness. the all the hip young kids. Um, and if you want to find us, check us out on Twitter at Temporary Expert. Just one expert. Please send us your recommendations, things you liked. Uh, we didn't have any pictures, but if you want to draw a picture of some lasers, go for it. I'm just waiting for someone to draw a picture and send it to us. I want it so badly. Or a snake. Or dogs. I mentioned lots of random oh things. Uh, but anyway, yeah, reach out to us. And if you are really liking the show, uh, please consider leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening to it, uh, listening to us on. Because it helps us to reach more audiences and hack those algorithms. Mm -hmm. That's what I was trying to do. Absolutely. So for all of us here, uh, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leung. And together we're your temporary, temporary experts. experts. Thanks for listening.